pastor's going to come. Good morning again. Before we get into our message, let me share just a few more things. A couple weeks ago, maybe it was even last week, I told you that we were going to uh, provide you with things to encourage one another. Um, one of those things are the encouragement cards that are already on the back bulletin board ta- or back table. Uh, we also have, Cindy has graciously made um, almost 200 little hand crocheted crosses um, that we're going to put this little note with. Um, and you're welcome to take as many of those crosses as you think you would use. The note says, May this cloth be a sign of God's loving, healing presence. May it encourage you when you are discouraged. May it assure you of God's care and comfort. May it remind you that you are surrounded by the prayers of others. Okay, so these little cards will be made. Uh, she's actually going to stick them inside the cross. Um, and so as you uh, think about somebody who may need a, a thing of encouragement uh, throughout the course of the week or whatever, you can take those and you can, I mean, they're small enough, you can stick them in an envelope and mail them or whatever, um, but you can use that as a means by which you can encourage other individuals. Wanted to give you an update on my mom. We went to see her last Sunday night. We weren't here. We uh, snuck out and went up to Messina, had the opportunity to preach up there in uh, my, the church I grew up in. And I got to tell you, um, it was like a family reunion because the whole side of the church is filled with Mowers or Boyers. Um, and so we had a great time that Sunday night. And then we had her 81st birthday party on Monday. She's doing better. She's not doing great, but she's doing, she's doing okay. Uh, if you would continue to pray for her, we would appreciate that. They're, they've ruled out a stroke. Uh, it could have been a TIA, what they call a, it's a trans ischemic attack, which mimics a stroke. Um, or they're also checking to see if there's limited restricted blood flow in her carotid arteries. Uh, so that would give you the same or similar symptoms as a stroke. So if you pray for her, uh, she would appreciate it. She doesn't like getting all these tests done. Um, and since all three boys were together last weekend, she really didn't have any much have any choice in the matter. Um, we told her that that's what she had to do, and so she's going to uh, work towards that uh, goal and have that hopefully sorted out. Um, so if you would pray for her, we certainly would appreciate that. All right, Philippians chapter 4, if you take, oh, wait a minute, we have a, we have a special family that's visiting with us today. Now, I got to tell you, I can't, you can't say th- these things about a lot of people. Um, every, how many people have been in a car accident? I've been in a car accident with Henry, okay? Wasn't his fault. We were going to go out and visit some people uh, in the church, and uh, we came down from the double wide we lived in, and it was, they also used that. They crossed our driveway with, a, with a snowmobiles and motorcycles and things like that. There was a young, little kid, a young kid. He was on his motocross bike, and he shot across the driveway and right into the side of the car. Um, so that was that. Was that. It was, yes, it was Paula's car. Um, Paula came to South Africa. What's that? Yes. So, um, so we had the opportunity to be in a car accident together, okay? Um, Paula came to South Africa, spent six weeks there with us, so we enjoyed having her. I do have to, um, she did tell me that she might fall asleep this morning. So, um, Paula, don't fall asleep, okay? I've got it under control. So it's, it's, it's locked and loaded, so, you know, all I have to do is reach down and grab it. Um, so anyway, 
Uh, she's been very busy this week. She, uh, she uh, hosted a work picnic and had some other things going on. So, but it's nice to have the Montgomery's with us. Yes, my mic is on. Oh, my tie's all twisted. Should I just take it off? All right, now let's get on to some serious stuff. Let's open God's Word together. Philippians chapter 4. Uh, we're going to look at the first seven verses. And I got to tell you, this is some exciting stuff that we're looking at this morning. You can look up on the screen. You can look up on your, on your note page. You can see the title of our message this morning is Our Position in Christ. Okay, our position in Christ. We looked last week at our citizenship. Where is our citizenship, by the way? Our citizenship is in heaven, okay? We might live in America, we might live someplace else around the world, but our citizenship is in heaven. Uh, and we talked about the fact that because our citizenship is in heaven, that has an effect on our position or our standing. You and I represent heaven, we represent Christ, and we want to do that well wherever he sends us, um, Having lived in another country, we, we were mindful that we re- represented uh, a lot of different things when we lived in South Africa. We represented our supporting and our sending church, okay? Uh, so we tried to live in such a way that we never brought shame or reproach to them. We also lived in being mindful of the fact that we were there to plant churches. I had, <laughs> I went to Home Affairs one, one time because we were having problems with our visas and they actually deported us from South Africa. Um, so I, before they deported us, I said to the lady at the Home Affairs counter, I said, so what do I do? They said, well, you can, uh, you can just ignore the fact that your visa has expired and you can ignore that we've told you that you have to leave the country and probably nobody would ever find out. You could probably leave and come back and there wouldn't be any big deal about it. And I said, well, we're actually here as missionaries. You've read all of our paperwork. We're not here to break the law. We're here to abide by the law and encourage others to do the same. And she said, well, then you're going to have to leave. So anyway, um, we try to remember that we're representing our great God. We're also representing our country. You know, as, as people who traveled abroad uh, regularly, and many of you have also done that, sometimes you come across, in fact, often it's not sometimes, it's often you come across fellow Americans who sometimes you want to distance yourself from and say, I, you know, I really, they're not from my country. Because a lot of times, you know, Americans don't represent themselves well in the international community because Let's face it, we have a lot of um, things going on for us, and we expect we have a high standard. Okay, When things in other countries don't measure up to our standard, we might not like it. We might be very vocal about how it is. Okay, So we have to represent our country well. And as Christians, we have to represent our great God and our heavenly home in a manner that is honoring to him. So as citizens of heaven, we want to present a picture of heaven being a place where you want to go, where people want to end up there. They don't want to be estranged from heaven. They actually want to represent heaven well. So you might ask the question, how can I be a good representative of heaven? How can my life draw others to my, to my great God and to my Savior? Well, let's start with this thought. This is how we represent heaven well. I have the power of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords at my disposal, so I need to make use of that power as I live my life. I have the power of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords at my disposal. So what do I do? I make use 
of that power as I live my life. That's important for us to remember. Paul wants the Philippians and he wants you and I to know that living like Christ is possible because Christ makes it possible. You and I can't live like Christ in our own strength. There's no possible way that we could do what the Bible asks us to do as followers of Christ and our own abilities. We don't have those abilities. We don't have the wherewithal to do that. But because Christ satisfied God's wrath, reconciled us to a holy God, and has sent his spirit to live within us, we have all that we need to live lives as God wants us to live. So the first seven chapters of, or the first seven verses of chapter four give instructions on how to live and how to allow Christ to be that enabling factor as we walk with him. Let me set some parameters for you before we actually read the first seven verses of the chapter. Um, Verse one sets the background for us. Notice how chapter four starts. Somebody look down there in your copy of the scriptures and tell me, what's the first word of chapter 4? Therefore, okay? And you know when there's a therefore there, we want to find out why it's there. What's the context? It's telling us, hey, check the context. Find out what happened before. So Paul uses that word to tie together the idea of living in Christ and the subject that we have starting out in verse 4, our heavenly citizenship, and we, we talked about this heavenly citizenship before, and we want to make sure that we know how to make use of that heavenly citizenship and also live in Christ. Notice in verse 1, Paul's love for the Philippians with the terms that he uses. He says, my beloved, my beloved. What do we have there? Well, this is, this is not the first time Paul has used that phrase, my beloved. He's used it a number of times, and he's calling the Philippians his brethren, his brothers. It shows the kindred spirit that he felt towards them. They, they were all part of the family of Christ, like we are all part of the family of Christ. And Paul wants us to know the deep affection that should be involved in the family of God. There's a deep, deep affection that Paul felt towards the Philippian believers, and we should feel that towards one another. Um, Why does that affection take place? Well, because our hearts have been knit together. Our hearts have been knit together. Um, You can go ahead, jump ahead. We might we might be jumping past the scripture, but you can go back to it. Uh, the first slide there of your note should be that our hearts have been knit together because we are the beloved brethren. He also says, and my longed for brethren, my longed for brethren. What is Paul saying here? Paul wants to use this phrase longed for because again, he says, I have this deep pain in my heart because we've been separated from those of a kindred spirit. You know, when you've not been around somebody for a long time, you kind of have that pain in your heart that just says, man, I wish I could spend some time with so-and-so. Whether it's a family member or an old friend, man, I just wish we could spend some time together. And you have that opportunity. But you, you know, you're, you're longing for that companionship. You're longing for some face-to-face interaction. Why? Because you have a kindred spirit. Paul calls them my joy and my crown. Paul's source of joy was not in earthly pleasures. We've talked so much about the idea of joy since we've started this study in the book of Philippians. The relationships that were built because of the ministry that Paul had 
they, de- they helped him derive joy. They helped him find joy in his life, purpose in living. We probably can all identify with the idea of the joy that comes from seeing individuals that you have had an impact in spiritually, seeing them walk into things that are honoring to God. Now, God has this way of bringing individuals into our lives that cause us to grow. He uses individuals to grow us, to cause us to uh, look at our lives and either say, hey, I want to be more like that individual, I want to follow their example, or hey, God's allowing me to pour into their lives. Either way, it helps us to grow. When God brings these individuals into our lives, we have, we have the opportunity to have a spiritual impact in that relationship. Paul's telling the Philippians that because of their, they were faithful disciples of Christ and they were constantly pouring into the lives of others, um, this is what keeps the joy in our hearts. My joy, he called them my joy and my crown. It gives us a keeping joy, something that's not fleeting, something that doesn't leave us, you know, all the time. It's something that's in our hearts on a regular basis. And when he says, my joy and my crown, you know what the crown is? The crown is, and if you want to spell it with a K, you can just to keep the alliteration going. It's the conqueror's prize, okay? The crown is the conqueror's prize. We're just finishing up the Olympics, right? And, and every time somebody wins an Olympic event, what is the result? You used to have somebody put a gold medal around your neck. Now they don't do that. You have to take it yourself and put it around your neck. But that's the, that means you've conquered everybody else in the field. There's nobody quite as good in this particular event as you. It's the conqueror's prize. We have a lot of people leaving Tokyo to come back to America with gold around their neck. Well done. Showing that we have been victorious and when we have the privilege of building into others' lives and seeing them to come to know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, we also gain the conqueror's prize. Every time we go out and God brings somebody across our path, we should be looking for the opportunity to communicate Christ to them. If not just in the way we live life, by the things that we say to them. Every time. Well, Timothy, can you back up for us so we can read those verses together? Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. I'm going to make you stand because it is God's word that we're reading together. And we can't say that you've not had your exercise this morning, right? Philippians chapter 4, starting with verse 1. We'll read through verse 7. Read along with us on the screen. Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and my crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved, I implore Iodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. 
Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the privilege of gathering together to open your word. It's part of our worship, Father. We've enjoyed our worship so far this morning by singing songs, and we've enjoyed our worship by praying. Uh, and even as we entered or as we leave, we enjoy the opportunity to give to the ministries here at Calvary Baptist Church. That's all part of worship, and, and that doesn't change as we open your word and we, we listen and we preach your word to uh, bring about changes in our lifestyle. Father, as we think about continuing worship in the preaching time this morning, we ask that your spirit would, uh, would work in our hearts and in our minds, that we might understand your word as it is being spoken to us this morning. Thanks again for your love and your care. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, you may be seated. How long do you want to sit for? Because that will determine how long I preach. How long? An hour? Okay, it's, it, it's a quarter to 11, so we got to be done by quarter to 12. That was the only response I got, so, all right. So, as we look together at God's word this morning, Philippians chapter 4, we just read it, and we've been, we've been reminded through the reading of the scripture how important it is for us to work together for the cause of Christ. How do we do that? Is that an easy thing to do, or is that a difficult thing to do? Well, Working for the cause of Christ is not always difficult. Sometimes it is. But the idea of working together, working together for the cause of Christ is sometimes difficult. Can I tell you, the last, last month, you know, we have four guys serve on our deacons, deacon board plus me, so that makes five. Um, you know, sometimes it's hard to work together to get a date for a deacon's meeting. Okay, I, I don't know how many times we rescheduled it last month, but we, we rescheduled it a number of times. Um, and, and, and it's hard to work together, even on simple things. But now we're talking about working together for the cause of Christ, working together to make an impact in the world where God has placed us. Sometimes that's difficult, especially as the family grows and there's more and more people that God brings in. But can I tell you this? It's certainly not impossible. Well, let me back up. It's not impossible in our own, it's not possible in our own strength. Because remember what scripture teaches us? With God, all things are possible. So even with more and more people becoming part of the family of God, and, and I'm not just talking about Calvary Baptist Church of Preble, there's a lot of other places like us that worship God, that love God, and have as a desire to reach others for the cause of Christ, to impact the, the place where God has put them. We're working together with our fellowship of churches, our local fellowship of churches, to make a greater impact in Cortland County and, in, and even in the fringe counties around us. We want people to know what we believe, what we stand for, but we also want people to know that we love them, like Christ loved them, like God loved them, because that's how you make an impact in their life. If they don't think you love them and you just, you know, churches for a long time have had the reputation of knowing the Bible, Right? And as churches, we should know the Bible. should be an important thing. We, we should know doctrine. We should know God's word better than anybody else. But if we don't have love, what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 13? It's like a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. If I don't have love, if people don't know that I love them, they don't care how much I know about God's word. 
They need to know that I love them, and then it allows me the opportunity to share the word of God with them, communicate God's love to them, and they're much more likely to respond. So how do I live for Christ? How do I stand fast in him? Well, living in Christ requires that I remain in him. We see that in verses one through three. Living in Christ by remaining in him. By remaining, we're talking about standing fast. I've been working on the the, the parsonage chimney because a lot of the a lot of the cement has fallen off and it's leaking. Yesterday it was getting hotter and hotter and hotter as the morning wore on. And you know what? My trowel, which started kind of at an angle when I would stick it back in the bucket, before I got finished with the job, I had a hard time sticking my trowel back in the cement. It was standing fast. It wasn't wavering. It was staying right there. And as I put the cement on the chimney and, and smoothed it out with the trowel, it wasn't moving. It was, it was drying very quickly. That's the idea that we have here. You're standing fast. You're standing firm. You're not moving from your position. And what's the position that Paul says we have to stand fast in? We stand fast in him. We stand fast in Christ this, um, this command, stand fast, was a military command. It was a command given to soldiers. A soldier, when he was on guard, he was to go out and he was to stand fast. He was going to stand firm. He was not to give up his position. He was to hold his position no matter what. For a believer, it means to stand fast or unmovable in one's commitment to Christ. An example of one who stood fast was set by Martin Luther. We've talked about this before when we've studied the book of Romans, okay? Martin Luther stood fast for the word of God. Listen to what he said at the Diet of Worms. He says, your imperial majesty and your lordships demand a simple answer. Here it is, plain and unvarnished. Unless I am convicted of error by the testimony of scripture, Or, since I put no trust in the unsupported authority of Pope or of councils, since it is plain that they have often erred and often contradicted themselves, by manifesting reason, I stand convicted by the scriptures to which I have appealed, and my conscience is is taken captive by God's word. I cannot and will not recant anything. For to act against our conscience is neither safe for us nor open for us. On this I take my stand. I can do no other. God help me. Wow. That's standing firm. And and his life was on the line. If If you recant, we'll just forget about it and everything can go away. It'll be just like nothing ever happened. Martin Luther said, I cannot recant. Here I stand. God help me. How do we do this? How do we stand? Paul gives us some helpful information in his admonitions to the church at Philippi. First of all, we see, we've already read verses 1 through 3. We see here a commitment to unity. There's a commitment Paul calls for. And he says, I want you to be unified as a body of Christ. 
Be of the same mind is the way he wrote it in the text. This command was given to two women, Iodia and Syntyche. No wonder they disagreed because you can't even say their names hardly. But anyway, um, Iodia and Syntyche, they had a disagreement. And Paul doesn't give us any details about the disagreement. But it must have been serious enough to cause Paul in a letter to the entire church to address these two ladies and tell them to quit fighting. The Apostle Paul says to these two women, knock it off. Women, ladies, stop fighting in the church. There's no reason for it. He wants them to quit fighting and to get their personal problems sorted out. That's really plain and simple what Paul is telling these two women. Paul gave a similar instruction to the whole church in chapter 2, verse 2, where he says, Fulfill ye my joy by how... You know, if, if the Apostle Paul was involved in your life and in your ministry and even in starting your church, what would you think your goal would be? Well, one of the goals would be probably to make the Apostle Paul happy, to, to, to please him. And we could do that because Paul says, I'm trying to please the Lord, so please the Lord by trying to please me. So that you would want to please the Apostle Paul. So Paul says, fulfill you my joy by being like-minded. Having the same love, being of one accord, and of one mind. Paul wanted these two women to think the same way or be intent on one purpose. We talked about that purpose. That purpose is being like Christ. Being Christ-like. Now, this doesn't mean that there can be no differences or any differing opinions in in the body of Christ. We're all different people, so we're all going to have different thoughts and different ideas. But what Paul is saying here is when it comes to things of the word of God, there should be nothing in the body that is we struggle with. And if there's a difference of idea or a difference of thought, we ought to sit down and study the scriptures together and figure out where that difference is and what is it that God wants us to do and believe and to practice. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, that's what we ought to be doing. When Paul says, I want you to be of one mind and of one practice, of one heart, let me tell you this. Um, Paul is saying that the word of God must be our authority. The word of God must be where we stand. We must be willing to put aside opinions and preferences for the sake of the word of God. There are some areas, however, where we can't have differences, where we can't deviate. We would call those things the fundamentals of the faith. Now, we don't know what these ladies were fighting about, but we know that their conduct was harmful not only to each other, but it was harmful to the church. It was harmful to the testimony of the church. And Paul says, you guys need to sort that out. I think it's also important to note something here. Paul doesn't simply say, just let them walk away. Just let them go. Let them leave. And that way the problem will go away. You know, far too often people simply walk away from the church. And they don't deal with the issues. They don't deal with the problems. They don't deal with whatever differences they might have. Can I tell you this? Simply walking away is not the solution. In fact, it's never probably the right thing to do. As brothers and sisters in Christ, that's you and I, we're all brothers and sisters in Christ, 
indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We could have you raise your hand this morning if you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Everybody would raise their hands. <laughs> raise your hands for the Holy Spirit, right? Okay. Uh, we would all raise our hands because the Bible teaches us that the moment you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells you. Can I also tell you this, that you don't ever lose the Holy Spirit? He never leaves you. Hence, when we get to the book of Ephesians and we read Ephesians 5, verse 18, where it says, don't, don't be drunk with wine where it's in excess, but be filled in the Spirit. That's not the Holy Spirit, because you got all the Holy Spirit you're ever going to get the day you trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. What that's saying is let your spirit be filled with the Holy Spirit's wisdom, direction, and guidance. Okay? So as I look at my life, there are areas where I may need to yield my spirit to the Holy Spirit. I may need to say, okay, God, I'm not handling this right. Give me wisdom. Help me to do the right thing. Help me to get my act together. Or as he told Iodia and Syntyche, knock it off. Do the right thing. Live in unity with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and using scripture as our authority for faith and practice. We ought always, and I can't say that enough, we ought always to be able to work through whatever differences we have in the body of Christ. Work them through. Why? Because the Spirit lives within us and the Word of God is our instruction. There's only one word of God. There's only one spirit. So we ought to be able to work them out. Paul goes on and he challenges these women to be of the same mind. He wants them to return to their previous form where they alongside of the apostle Paul were contending for the ministry of the gospel. You see, these people weren't always contentious. They were contenders before they became contentious. And by the way, you don't have to be contentious to be a contender. Okay? We contend, and you know what's, I've, I've enjoyed watching the Olympics. Uh, there was a, a, a swimming race. I can't remember who it was. It wasn't Katie Ledecky, but it was two Americans uh, and, and two South Africans were in the same race. It was for the medal. The, you know, it, was a, it, was, it wasn't a heat. It was a, it was a medal contending race. Okay, and the, it was a very hotly contended race, um, and the Americans finished first and third with a South African in between, and at the end of the race, the two Americans and the two South Africans were just hugging each other. They were contending. They put everything they had into it, but they weren't being contentious. They loved each other, and, and I don't know about love, but they were showing affection to one another and gratitude, and hey, well done, nice job, way to compete, all that kind of stuff. You don't always have to be contentious when you're contending to be victorious. We want to be victorious in the Christian life, so we want to contend for Scripture. We want to contend for the cause of Christ, but we want to do it lovingly. You've heard me say many, many times that we have an offensive message. The gospel is offensive, right? We don't have to be offensive in our deliverance of the gospel. If you turn people off right away, then you're never going to be able to share the good news or communicate the good news with people. So Paul wants these women to to return to their previous form of contending for the ministry of the gospel. They had since gotten sidetracked, these two women. And you know what? They got sidetracked over non-scriptural matters. 
things that didn't matter in eternity's sake. They got, they got focused on the wrong things. And it's easy to do in the world in which we live, to get focused on the wrong things. Paul says, you need to get back on track. He says to the church, you need to get them back on track. You need to get them serving the great God who has called them to serve him. That was what Paul wanted them to understand. He goes on to say, not only are we supposed to have um, a commitment to unity, but he also says we need to have a commitment to camaraderie. He says, help these women who labored with me in the gospel. You see, Paul asks true companions to help these two women to sort out their differences so that there is peace and unity in the body. This division had become so serious that it threatened the testimony and the integrity of the church at Philippi. Wow. These two women were at each other's throats. And Paul says, it's got to stop. And you, and the, you who are my true companions in the faith, work with these two women to bring them back to a peaceful, loving relationship. Churches striving to please the Lord should not be known for division and strife, but for unity and harmony in the body. I, I enjoy it when people come and they visit our church and they say, boy, I, I, I want to be part of this because I can tell that there's a good spirit here. Praise the Lord for that. Paul also shares his heart with the church and his leadership. He reminds them that these two ladies had faithfully labored with Paul and with others for the cause of the gospel. But their division had taken them out of the contest. Took them right out of the race. If you get too involved in all the pre-race hype and all of that kind of stuff, you can get disqualified before the race even starts. And that's what had happened with these two. They had disqualified themselves because of the division that they were, they were having with one another. Paul wants them to be contenders in the Christian life. In fact, God intends for all of us to be contenders in the Christian life. You and I can take this passage of Scripture and we can make direct application to our own lives. Paul wants you and I to contend for the gospel. We all know folks that used to be faithful contenders. We know that they now some of them are just kind of sitting on the sidelines, watching as the ministry moves on beyond them. There are folks that used to faithfully gather here with us and for some, some reason or other, usually not a very significant or serious matter, they've sidelined themselves. They've taken themselves out of the race. God doesn't want that. God wants us to work for the unity in the body and for the, the, the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So as Paul desired for Iodia and Syntyche to sort things out and to get back involved in serving the Lord or contending for the gospel, let's take that challenge for ourselves and remain faithful or become faithful once again. Maybe you're kind of on the fringe right now and Sunday morning is your thing and you don't come any other time, you don't do anything else. Can I say like Paul? Stop it. Get involved. Get serving the Lord. Get back in the, in the game so God can use you for his honor and his glory and so that others in the community around us will see that we are a church that is serious about loving them and serving them. Whew. We need to move on. Verse four, living in Christ by rejoicing in him. Can you, Paul goes from one 
hot-button topic to telling people to rejoice in Christ. Why? Because as Christians, we should always be rejoicing in Christ. We see the person of our rejoicing. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice. You see, this word rejoice is an incredible word. Remembering the theme for, for Philippians, our, the theme is our joy in Christ. Sometimes the difficulties we face make it nearly impossible to be happy. I don't very often watch, I think it's American Idol. In fact, the last time I watched it, there was a lady on there. She was, she was singing. Her name was, she went by the title or the name Nightbird. Okay? And the only reason I remember this is because it was on Family Life Radio yesterday. Um, and, and Nightbird got up there and she introduced himself, herself. And I think Simon asked her what she does for a living. And she said, well, I've not had a job for a couple years because I'm battling cancer. And she's like, I don't know, probably 20-something years old. And everybody's like, oh, no, what do we say now? Just taking on, you know, just everybody. And Simon Cowell's never for lack of words, right? Okay. But he didn't know what to say. Oh, I'm sorry. And she says, don't be sorry. Don't be sorry. You know, there's opportunities for us to, to live life and enjoy life, even in the midst of pain and difficulties. She went on to sing a song, It's Okay. This is a, I don't know that I agree with it, everything theologically, but it was an encouraging, uplifting little tune that she wrote herself to remind herself that, hey, it doesn't matter what's going on in life. It's okay. It's okay to face difficulties. It's okay not to be happy all the time. But can I tell you this? Even if you're not happy, we still have joy. Even in the midst of difficult struggles. And that's really what Nightbird reminded all of the judges there. In fact, she she got moved on to the next round, I guess, according to Family Life. And maybe even the next round. But she had to take herself out of the competition because of her health. She took a, a, a downturn. And things got worse for her. And I don't know what her status is right now. But you know what? She's, remind, she's known for reminding people that it's okay. And as Christians, it's okay. For us to, ha- to be sad from time to time. To not be happy about everything that's going on in our life. But that should never rob us of our joy. Paul says rejoice always. Again let me tell you. Rejoice. Rejoice. Carl Barth in his commentary on the book of Philippians said. In Philippians joy is thus a continuous defiant nevertheless. If he were saying it today. He would say, it is a continuous, defiant, it is what it is. Let's keep going on. Let's keep moving on. Let's keep being joyous. We must understand that the nevertheless draws its strength not from its defiance. Sometimes we get strong in our defiance. But the nevertheless doesn't draw its strength from its defiance. It rather draws its strength from untiring prayer in which we bring all our needs before an almighty God who hears and answers those prayers. Wow. No wonder we can be joyous. No wonder we can continue to work on for the cause of Christ. Because we can knock on the door of heaven whenever we want. And ask God for that strength to help us carry on. Moving forward for the cause of Christ. 
The rather, it's the, defi- the strength comes from the rather untiring prayer by which we bring all of our needs before an almighty God who hears and answers those prayers. You see, joy gains strength from the continued presentation of the gospel message by God's children. When you share the gospel with somebody else, you know what it does to, for you? It brings that joy right back into your into the forefront of your life. It reminds you what you have in Christ. It reminds you all that God has done for you and that you have no reason not to be joyful. So as we share the good news, we are encouraged. And as more and more people respond to the gospel, our joy level just keeps ticking up and up and up and up. Paul also reminds us that our rejoicing is in a particular person. It's not in your spouse. It's not in your pastor. It's not in your children or even your grandchildren. It's in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. Colin Brown's Dictionary of the New Testament makes this observation about rejoicing in the Lord. The present period of trials and distress is limited. So no matter what you're going through in life, that time period is limited. He goes on to say, hence joy is based primarily on the hope that after suffering together, we shall be glorified together. This joyous and confident waiting for the day of Christ puts our present experience into true perspective. What we're struggling with, what's making us uh, unhappy at the moment is temporary. But where we're going to spend eternity, oh man, in the presence of God Almighty. Hallelujah! What else can we say but thank you, Jesus, for what you have accomplished for me? So in other words, Paul says, rejoice always. We see here the permanence of rejoicing. Always again I say rejoice. Pretty, Paul is pretty certain here that we should be rejoicing no matter what's going on in life. Rejoice in the Lord always again I say rejoice. This came from a man who at times Paul felt all alone. Felt as though he was waiting for the, for the, next, the next bomb to drop. Where was Paul when he was writing this letter? In prison. What was Paul waiting for? The outcome of a trial that may well result in his execution. And yet he says... Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. You see, Paul truly believed that there was no earthly circumstance, be it loneliness, impending death, or any other trial that could rob him of his joy. No matter what's going on in life, as Christians, we can be joyful. James had this same mindset over in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, where he writes this. He says, my brethren... Count it all what? All joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Our joy is perfected in the person of Jesus Christ. How can we rejoice, though? How can it be possible when we're facing difficult times? You know, We're facing a difficult time right now. We're in a worldwide pandemic. And I think Satan has used this pandemic to get Christians focused on things that we don't need to focus on. Where do we keep our focus as Christians? Right here, on this book. 
We keep our focus focused on what God has called us to do. What has God called us to do? Every one of us, he's called us to do what? Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Having gone into all the world, make disciples. God has called every one of us sitting in this room here this morning to make disciples. Or at least be part of that disciple-making process. Don't hinder the process. Be involved in making the progress go forward. Make disciples. Don't get your focus on other things that are temporary, that will pass, that have no, 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 no bearing on life right now or life in eternity. Don't focus on masks. Don't focus on lockdowns. Don't focus on man-centered things. Let's commit today to focus on what God has called us to do, and that is to reach the lost with the good news of Jesus Christ. Let's keep focused on that and keep dead set ahead moving forward for that cause. So Paul doesn't stop there, though, does he? He wants us to understand some other things about how we can rejoice when things are difficult. We live in Christ by resting in his presence. We live in Christ by resting in his presence. How do I rest in the presence of Jesus Christ? It's hard to rest. We've got so many things going on in life. It's difficult to rest. But Paul says, rest in the presence of the Lord. How do I do that? Well, Paul says, know that the Lord is at hand. You see, you and I, we have knowledge of the Lord's presence the Lord is near. The Lord is with us. There's some question as to what that phrase, at, the Lord is at hand, mean. What does at hand mean? Well, it could mean that the Lord is near us because he's omnipresent. God is everywhere present, so he's, he's right here. You can, he can't be any closer to me than he is. And that's true. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 145, verse 18, The Lord is near all to call upon, who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He also said in Psalm 139, verse 7, where he is celebrating his great God, he says, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? The obvious answer is nowhere. Everywhere I go, God, you are there. There's nowhere that God is not present. However, Paul already referred to the return of Christ numerous times in Philippians. So I think the context of this passage reminds us that he's talking about the return of Christ, or as we call it, the rapture, the rapture of the church. Listen to the comment that is made in one of my study Bibles. It says, the next great event in God's prophetic schedule is Christ's return. The whole period from Christ's first coming to the consummation of the kingdom is viewed in the New Testament as the last times. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. You see, from God's vantage point, a thousand years is as one day. Thus, there's a sense in which for every generation, the Lord's coming is near. The Lord's coming is at hand, if you will. Paul is telling us that because Christ is going to come for his bride at any moment. You want a big $5 word for that today? Imminent. We believe in the imminent return of Jesus Christ. Any moment return, any moment that Jesus can descend from the clouds and, and catch us up and take us home to be with him for all of eternity. There's nothing that has to happen before the return of Jesus Christ and what we call the rapture. The rapture, 
Some people have said the rapture is just an escape mechanism that Christians made up uh, so they would be able to escape the difficulties in the world at the time. That's nonsense. The rapture is a, pa- is a, is a teaching taught in the pages of Scripture. The Lord shall descend. In the moment, the twinkling of an eye, the last trump, for the trump will sound, and the dead in Christ will be, will be, will ra- be raised. That word raised, it, it's, the, it's the Hebrew word rapturo. Caught up, snatched up. We're going, my friends. Can't wait for that day. It'd be wonderful if we're here for it to happen. I mean, we'd even sacrifice Carl's pulled pork if the rapture could happen right now. Somebody else could enjoy it. You see, it's going to happen. And that fact that it could happen at any moment should drive you and I to live for the honor and the glory of our great God. It ought to cause us to have joy, to be living joyfully as we serve Christ. It's part of getting ready. God, didn't, God doesn't want us sitting off on some hillside waiting for the rapture. Don't you, isn't it kind of ironic every time somebody predicts the rapture is going to happen, what do they do? They go and sit and wait for it to happen. That's not what God called us to do. God says, be busy telling others about Jesus Christ so that when the rapture does happen, they can go with us. I'm not going to play a song for you. But I do have to read the songs for you. Uncle Bud, if you're watching this morning, you would like this this group. Many of you wouldn't like the group. It's from the 80s, okay? Uh, A group called DeGarmo and Key. They were, a, they were a band that was kind of out there as far as music was concerned. But their lyrics were many times so amazing. One of the songs they wrote was Casual Christian. I don't want to be a casual Christian. Okay? Uh, meaning, I don't want to be a Christian when it's comfortable for me. I want to be a Christian all the time. But another song that they wrote is called Ready or Not. Ready or Not. And it's a song that talks about the rapture. Let me read it for you. It says this. If you're not living like you should be living, you better give it all that you've got. Because when, when you hear the trumpet sound, you're already off the ground, ready or not. If your diary isn't what it should be, you better rearrange the plot. Because by the time you see his face, you'll be on your way to space, ready or not. The time has come to change from cold to hot. By the time you see him there, you'll be flying through the air, ready or not. So if you're waiting for just the right occasion, you better give your finest shot. You've got no time left to lose. Turn to God or sing the blues, ready or not. If you're not living like you should be living, you better give it all that you've got. Because when you hear that trumpet sound, you're already off the ground, ready or not. The time has come to change from cold to hot. By the time you see him there, we'll be flying through the air, ready or not. Ready or not, 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 ready or not. God's going to come at his appointed time. He's going to send his son. He's going to say to Jesus, Jesus, today's your wedding day. Go and get your bride. And when he says that, Jesus is going to descend, and that's where we read in 1 Corinthians 15, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, you've already, I've already said it to you once, Jesus is coming. Nothing's stopping it. Nothing's going to prevent it. It's already been ordained when that time will come. In fact, Jesus told his disciples, you don't worry about when I come back. You leave that up to the Father, because the Father has all the timing in his hand. But we want to be ready 
for the coming of Christ. We want to be serving him. We want to be doing all that we can for the cause of Christ. So the next thing we see in our text is that we need to live in keeping with the idea that the Lord is at hand. Live in keeping with the idea that the Lord is at hand. Paul gives three three pieces of advice here for us to live like we believe the Lord's return is soon. He says it here, first of all, be gentle. Why don't you understand this word gentle though? Some may look at this word and think it means that Christians must be wimpy and passive. I'm going to tell you that's not what it means. Just because it says be gentle doesn't mean that we have to be mamby-pamby wimps or whatever the term would be used today. Okay? We don't have to be a doormat for the world. It means, though, that one remains calm and acts in a way that is genuinely fair. I like what Leitner says. Leitner says, a forbearing and non-retaliatory spirit. A forbearing and non-retaliatory spirit. Caleb and I were fooling around as church as they came into church this morning, and I went up and I straightened his collar on his shirt, and he's like, I said, don't worry, if I was going to slap you, I'd slap you. And there isn't anything you could do about it. So after I finished fixing his collar, I slapped him on the shoulder. And he says, I'm going to have to get you back. You see, that's what it's like. We, we do those kinds of things. We have fun doing those kinds of things. But retaliation shouldn't be the mindset of the Christian. It shouldn't be, a God, boy, you wait till they let their guard down. I'm going to get them back. But rather, we're supposed to be gentle, a forbearing and a non-retaliatory spirit. Being gentle makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? You think about it. How many people watch hockey? Not very many people watch hockey. I love hockey. Played it growing up. You know what? When you watch a hockey game, it's very seldom the first person that gets thrown in the penalty box. When, when you get checked in a dirty way or you get cross-checked or you get hacked with somebody else's stick, the best thing you could do is Nothing. But that's not the way our human nature is. You hit me, so what am I going to do? I'm going to hit you back, and I'm going to hit you back harder. You see, the ref doesn't catch the first person's act. It might draw his attention over, something's going on over there. But then the next thing you know, when you've been hit, and you turn around, and you take your stick, and you smack them back. Two minutes in the box. You see, it's the one who retaliated that got in trouble. Paul says, don't be, don't be retaliatory. Be gentle. Be patient. Don't throw, don't, throw the, don't throw the second punch. What did Jesus say? Turn the other cheek. That's hard, isn't it? It's not easy to do. But that's what we should do. And then Paul says, go to God in prayer. Don't be anxious about anything, but in prayer and supplication, make your requests known to God. You've heard me say before that my grandma was a woman of prayer. She used to have a magnet on her refrigerator that said, why worry when you can pray? And grandma lived that out. She was a prayer. Anything you needed to have prayed about, You could go to my grandma and say, Grandma, will you pray about this? And even if you didn't think you needed it to be prayed about, she was probably already praying about it for you. 
Here's Paul's principle of substitution again. Stop doing what is wrong. In other words, stop being anxious, worrying, and start doing what is right. What is right? Praying about it. Worrying doesn't accomplish anything. Prayer changes things. Jesus' teaching about worry was the same over Matthew chapter 26, verse 25. He said, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And then in verse 31 and following, Jesus says, Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows what you need that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So Paul is saying, pray to our great God. He talks about three different ways of praying, or four different ways of praying. He, he says, pray, in prayer and supplication. See, prayer is the act of going to God, the act of praying. The act of taking some time, setting it aside, and actually talking to God. Going to the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, in his throne room, and beseeching him to work on behalf of something. If you say you're going to pray, then you need to do it. You need to pray. Supplications are petitions. That's what we use the prayer chain for. Somebody says, Pastor, this is happening in my life. Can you pray for me? That's a supplication. That's a specific thing. And we're going to God. We're requesting an answer for a specific thing. We petition our great God. Why? Because he's the only one who really can do anything about it. We petition him. You know, oftentimes when things happen that we don't like, we, we put together on this piece of paper or what? A, a petition. And we get as many signatures on that as we can, and we take it to the people who can do something about it. Can I tell you something? God is the one who can do something about it. You want know, to petition somebody? You take it to God. You take that specific need, that specific request, and you go to God and you let him deal with it. And then Paul says, as part of praying, we, are, we need to be giving thanksgiving. We need to be people who are thankful. Thanksgiving here is the proper attitude that we must have when we pray. For a lot of people, hopefully unsafe people, praying is like a grocery list. God, do this, 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 and the next thing. We need to be going to God with a thankful heart in worship of him. And then we after we've thanked him and we've worshipped him and we've adored him, then we say, and by the way, these are the things I'm concerned about. And we lay them at his feet and we leave them there for him to deal with. Thanksgiving is the proper attitude to have when we pray. And I get it. Sometimes something pops up in the spur of the moment and we just, automatic reaction is God, and we pray to him. And there's nothing wrong with that. But our habit of prayer should be one of thanksgiving. And then again, he says, let your requests be made known unto God. These are particular things. Again, things that maybe somebody has asked you to pray about. Maybe there's things that have come up in your life. But you know what? We should be telling people, we should be praying in the course of everyday life. My, our nephew, Barb's niece, Jordan, her husband, Tyler, 
he lives in the Midwest. Poor guy, he's a Yankee fan. He made a comment on Facebook. He said, I love that old man, Brett Gardner. And I Because he drove in the winning run the night before. So I made a comment. And then I said, and by the way, how are you guys feeling? Uh, we're praying for you. Uh, and so we had this, then this ongoing conversation about how they're doing. In the midst of talking about an old man named Brett Gardner who drove in a winning run. You see, what was more important, that Brett Gardner drove in the winning run or that we're praying for their well-being? You see, life goes on, but even in the midst of everyday life, we need to be people of prayer. We need to be bringing these things to our great God because he is the one who deals with them. And then Paul says, enjoy the gift of God's peace. You you can have peace that passes all kinds of understanding. And the world won't get it because they don't understand that kind of peace that we're talking about. What is this peace that we're talking about? Let me read a a definition from John MacArthur. He says, it's an inner calm or tranquility that's promised to the believer who has a thankful attitude based on unwavering confidence that God is able and willing to do what is best for his children. You know what? Doesn't that sound something like our definition for faith? God is able to do what he says he will do, and I order my life accordingly. So I have peace when I live by faith. Paul articulates why the peace of God is available to the believer in Ephesians chapter 2. You probably know these verses. Ephesians chapter 2, it's beyond those famous verses 8, 9, and 10. In verses 14 and 15, Paul says, For he himself, Jesus Christ, is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished the flesh in the enmity that is in the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to make, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity." You see, you and I can have peace with God, and when we have peace with God, we can have peace with others as well. You know what's amazing about this peace? This peace guards our hearts, and it guards our minds. Like a garrison protects a city, the peace of God protects our thinking process from the corrupt influences of Satan and the world. Where we lived in South Africa, not too far away from us was this big oil refinery. And at, we drove by it almost any time we went somewhere. We ended up going by this oil refinery. And every, I don't know, 50 yards or so, there was a concrete little hut up on top of a concrete wall. So you know me, I'm a curious kind of person. I said to somebody, I said, what, why are all those things up? They look like little huts. He says, yeah, he says, uh, they used to be armed. They used to have an armed guard sitting in that hut 24 hours a day. I said, why? Why did they do that? Well, because this oil refinery was on a target, a list of tar- things that would be targeted if they wanted to take down the current government. So there were army soldiers in those little bunkers so that if somebody tried to get in and, and put a bomb in the oil refinery, they wouldn't get, and they had, not to mention that they had three different walls topped with razor wire and all that kind of stuff there. You see, that's what we're talking about here. The peace of God guards our hearts and our minds. 
We don't have to let anything take the peace of God away from us. Although Satan tries very hard to make that happen. What a blessing it is to live like Christ. Living in Christ allows you and I to stand fast for what is right. It helps us to have the same mind and gives us a desire to work together for unity and harmony within the body. Living in Christ helps us maintain an attitude of rejoicing in Him. No matter what's happening in our life, if we maintain our focus on Christ, we can rejoice. It's possible when we live in light of His presence. Let's remember that the Lord is at hand. Let's remember that he's coming for his bride.